You're a moron. Star Wars? That again? Ugh. Um, but Saving Private Ryan. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. And I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So, this week, for the big release of Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, we are taking a look at another another fantastic war movie. So, in order to do that, we are bringing in a guest, Andrew, from the AB Film Review and the Last New Wave podcast, to take a look at Saving Private Ryan and Morality. So, welcome to the show, Andrew. Hey, thank you very much for having me back. I, I noted as well that, you know, I'm kind of becoming a Steven Spielberg regular, so... You know what? Um, Didn't even think about it, but it's so true. This, Believe it or not, like, the, now that you mention it right now, is the first time I thought about it. But yeah, like, BFG, uh, like, every every Spielberg movie. E.T., yeah. Close Encounters. <laughs> it's the fourth one. But gradually working up to doing War of the Worlds and AI. But, you know, that's... that's Seeing how yeah. long pop culture case study goes Maybe for, if there's ever... Um, <laughs> If it ever lands on an April Fool's Day, then I'll do an episode talking about how either one of those movies is any better than taking a shit on your lawn, and then uh, and then we'll we'll get to it. Uh, but but until then, probably not. Uh, but Andrew, why don't you tell people about your many podcasts and how they can listen? Uh, yeah, many many podcasts. Uh, I do one with my wife Bernadette, uh, which where we discuss latest films and all that kind of stuff. Um, she's currently very upset at me because I haven't asked her on to the other one, which is The Last New Wave, <laughs> uh, where I do Australian films. Um, Dave has been a repeat guest because he can't say no. Uh, and <laughs> essentially, it's a, a podcast where I discuss Australian cinema and how good it is and how you should all watch more Australian cinema. Um, they're both uh, found abfilmreview.com and on following films too. So we're, we're talking about saving, saving Private Ryan and morality this week. So before I get into the psychology, would you like to give us a couple movie recommendations? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of war films and there are a lot of films that are about morality and stuff like that. So I've looked at, you know, there are, there are a few films which I could, could have come up with, but I, I thought of two specific ones. One that actually influenced Saving Private Ryan in a way, and that is Samuel Fuller's The Big Red One which is a really great war film and told from the perspective of somebody who actually fought in World War II. Uh, it's got Mark Hamill in it. Uh, he's really great. Um, and also Lee Marvin is, is in it as well. And it's a really fantastic film um, that looks at, you know, all different aspects of war, kind of condemns. It's not a pro-war film in any any regards. Um, and there was another film that, that Steven Spielberg was um, kind of influenced by, I would have recommended it if I've seen it, but it's so dark and depressing. That That's Come and See, uh, which is a Russian film. Um, so I, I can't recommend that one because I haven't seen it. But the, the one I do recommend seeing, it's in the Criterion Collection. Uh, it's a great Australian film called Breaker Morant, uh, which is about morality. And Man, you couldn't get out of this about... without talking about an Australian film, could you? Like you just <laughs> like on brand at all times. I love it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> But the, the thing is with Breaker Miranda is it, it looks at uh, the Boer War, which, 
you know, is a different war, obviously, than World War II, but it, it looks at morality in a very fascinating uh, perspective. Uh, so they're the two, Big Red One and Breaker Morant. Nice. And this is, I, I actually want to ask you about something before we jump to the psychology. There's this very, I can't remember who said it, but there's this kind of very famous quote out there. It's the idea that you, you can't ever really make an anti-war film because war is so exciting on screen that even if you're trying to get across this message of anti-war, it becomes like you get, you get like brought along with these men and it's exciting and you, and you feel like you want to be a part of it. What do you think about that? Do you think it's possible to make an anti-war film? Well, I think it is possible. And, and that's why I mentioned uh, Come and See, which is a Russian film um, and is very much, from what I understand, people have said it's one of the most depressing films you'll ever see mm. because it is simply so exhausting and, and depressing and looking at war from a child's perspective. Um, and that is that in particular is really, really mm. distressing, especially from a Russian perspective, which we so rarely get to see in cinema. Um, so I, I understand that that is very much an anti-war film, uh, looking at all perspectives. So, yeah, it is possible. Um, and I think that, you know, there are some directors who manage to, to do that in a really impressive way. Um, but it also kind of uh, falls onto the viewer in many ways. Because sure. uh, personally, I feel that there are some anti-war films uh, that many people think are pro-war films. Like American Sniper, for example. I'm not a huge fan of it, but it is a film that people can see it as being propaganda. And then others who think is very much anti-war. So, right. you know, it just depends on what your perspective as a viewer is. Yeah, I think we definitely do, of course, bring our own biases into movies at all times. But, I, you know, I always kind of bristle at the thought of, like, you can't make an anti-war film because there are plenty of war films that I've seen that show the the kind of the needlessness of this violence. And even though the violence is exciting and well-filmed, like, I think there are many movies. Like, you know, we covered The Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, on on this show and I walked away from that being like fuck this is not pro war at all like I don't I don't want any part of this so I think I think it can be done I think you can still have exciting battle sequences in a film and still walk away from it not not being pro war but I guess I can yes. I can understand both perspectives All hmm. right so we are going to take a break I will talk about morality and then we will bring Andrew back to talk about saving private Ryan Hey everyone I'm Jason Michael and I'm Lee Brady, and we're the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. We're a podcast that looks to analyze what makes films great with a warm atmosphere and a good laugh. New releases, retrospectives, and absolute classics all reassessed and reviewed. You can find the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio. And if you're looking for a more direct approach, you can find us on Twitter. Just look for Jason Michael at Atlantic SC and Lee Brady at Big Pick Reviews. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. All right, so today we're going to talk about morality in our psychological section. So morality is really talking about the intentions, actions, and decisions between, like the comparison between what's proper and what's improper. It can be a set of standards or principles that can be derived from like a code of conduct, um, or it can derive from um, what a person thinks is moral and is the right thing to do. It also tends to be synonymous with goodness or rightness. Now, of course, the other side of this is immorality, and that's the active opposition to what is good or right, while something like amorality is really the unawareness of or indifference towards a set of moral standards or, or principles. So before we move on, we're going to talk about 
morality from an anthropological perspective, from a neuroscience perspective, and then from a psychological perspective, because I think they're really all tied together. So first, the anthrop anthropological side of it. So Celia Green uh, talked about the difference between tribal and territorial morality. Territorial morality is basically negative and proscriptive. It defines what a person's territory is, including their property and the people they're connected to, and it shouldn't be damaged or interfered with. Now, apart from these specific proscriptions, territorial morality is really per permissive and allows the individual kind of whatever behavior doesn't interfere with the territory of another. Tribal morality, on the other hand, is prescriptive, which imposes the norms of the group on the individual. These norms sometimes can be really arbitrary, they can be culturally dependent, they can be flexible, whereas territorial morality aims at very specific rules that are absolute. Now within anthropology, I also talk a lot about in-group and out-group. So basically what it's, what it's saying here is for even for things like morality, which seems hard and fast, there are different rules for people inside the group and different rules for those outside the group. And this uh, this kind of dis discrimination has really arose over history because it, it enhances the group survival. And what the thing we're most concerned with as humans is our in-group and how we survive and how we thrive. There's also been some studies where they've kind of compared cultures and the morality. Um, two anthropologists named uh, Peterson and Seligman, uh, they they looked at this across cultures and across geocultural areas and over long, long periods of time. And what they found is that certain virtues prevail in all cultures. So the major virtues they identified include wisdom, courage, humanity, justice, temperance, and, transcend and transcendence. So, of course, each of these uh, are a little bit different within a group. So they have these divisions. For instance, like humanity can include things like love, kindness, and social intelligence. And there's a, there's a book out there called Did the Pedestrian Die?, um, and they tested members of a bunch of different cultures with these moral dilemmas. And so, for example, one of them was if should the driver of a car have his friend, a passenger riding in the car, lie in order to protect him from the consequences of driving too fast and hitting a pedestrian and hitting a pedestrian. He found that many cultures had different expectations and different rules when it came to the morals from this situation, which may seem pretty simple and straightforward. There's another book called Complete Conduct Principles for the 21st Century, written by John Newton, that compared the Eastern and Western cultures uh, in regards to morality. And there's a quote here that he said, one of the important object objectives of this book is to blend harmoniously the fine souls regarding conduct in the Eastern and Western cultures to take the result as the source and then to create new and better conduct principles to suit the human society of the new century and to introduce a lot of Chinese fine conduct spirits to the Western world. It is hoped that this will solve, solve lots of problems that the human society faces. So, and actually what they found in this book is there's a lot of differences. So it becomes hard to kind of crush them into one and have these rules because especially in a lot of eastern cultures again this is these are talking broadly not not about individual situations but people in eastern cultures tend to value the the family and the group a lot more than those in western cultures where we tend to we tend to value the individual so you're going to have different decisions made uh, even in situations where it seems like the morality is pretty pretty upfront so you are going to see some differences all right, so now we're going to move on quickly to the neuroscience. So when you're talking about neuroscience, you're talking about areas of the brain. And the brain areas that are usually involved when people think about moral issues have been investigated by uh, lots of quantitative large-scale studies. And when you make a moral right or wrong judgment, it activates an area called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. 
And when you have intu- an intuitive reaction to a situation um, that contains kind of moral issues, you're, the, acti- the, the area activated will be the, the temporal parietal junction area. So we, we just talked about the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which I will call the VMPC. So when they stimulated the VMPC by something called transcranial magnetic stimulation, it's, it's shown to inhibit the ability of people to take into account intent when forming moral judgments. So what they found is that when information concerning the person's belief is unavailable or degraded, the resulting moral judgment weighs heavier other morally relevant factors like the outcome, like how this is going to end up for everybody. So what this is kind of telling us in this study is that if person if a person is impaired uh, in the VMPC, they're going to judge an action purely on its outcome and won't be able to take intent into the account, which is a big deal when it comes to moral decision making. There's also been some studies on mirror neurons, and mirror neurons are neurons in the brain that fire when we see a person doing a certain action. And it sometimes is used to explain why if you are sitting across from someone and they cross their legs, you will tend to cross your legs as well to match them. You have this kind of empathy mirror neuron stuff going on. So cognitive neuroscientist uh, Jean Desate thinks that the ability to recognize and experience what another individual is undergoing is actually a really key step in the evolution of social behavior and ultimately morality. If you cannot feel empathy, when you cannot feel empathy, that's of course one of the defining characteristics of psychopathy, and that goes against morality. That that you're going to do, you're going to do the opposite. It's not amoral. It's not separate, but it is immoral. So these mirror neurons firing are actually helping us grow as people. All right. So now we move to the psychology. So in modern psychology, morality, we we look at it through personal development. So there's been a bunch of psychologists that have theories on the development of morals, and they usually kind of go through these stages of different morals. Uh, people like Lawrence Kohlberg, Jean Piaget, and Elliot Turiel have these approaches to moral development. So according to these theorists, morality forms in a series of stages or, domain, or domains. Some of them emphasize social and emotional development based on biology, like empathy, um, some, would, and they call themselves moral identity theorists, they see moral commitment as arising from when we develop our own identity, and that identity is actually defined by moral purposes. So we think we're naturally prone to be empathic and moral, so we have a sense of responsibility to pursue these moral purposes, but we still occasionally engage in immoral behavior. These behaviors will will lend itself to like a very negative self-image. If our self-identity is based on moral decision-making and then we do things that aren't moral, of course our identity is going to suffer. So in order to explain this kind of phenomenon, there's something called moral self-licensing. And what it's saying is that self-image security increases our likelihood to engage in immoral behavior. So the more secure we are, the kind of weaker we can be in our behavior because we have a stronger sense of self. But when our moral self-image is threatened, we can gain confidence from past and present moral behavior. So the more confident we are, the less we're going to worry about our future behavior, which actually increases the likelihood that we're going to engage in immoral behavior. So it's this constant cycle going on. Uh, Monin and Miller in 2001 took a look at this moral self-licensing effect and found that when people uh, established credentials as being non-prejudiced, they were more willing to express politically incorrect opinions, despite the fact that the audience was aware 
that they were supposedly non-prejudiced. And this is something that comes up a lot, especially in kind of the, the liberal world. Like we, if you think of yourself as a liberal, you think like, oh, I'm not, I won't say those things and no one else will. But sometimes some of the most hurtful things racially, uh, gender wise, um, sexuality wise, you are, you're going to hear from these very comfortable dyed in the wool liberals. And, and I think that that self-licensing effect is having an effect there. Like we have this confidence. So like I'm a liberal. So even if I say something terrible, they know it's coming from the right place. And that's not necessarily so. So this, uh, this psychology of, of morality can kind of come back around and bite us if we're not careful. So in this movie, it's actually really interesting to talk about morality because I think most of us, when we think about morality, we think, oh, I know what a moral decision is. I know what the right thing to do is in most situations. But, of course, we're talking about saving Private Ryan. So these young men are in a situation that probably most of us have not been in and certainly would not know how to react when we were 18 to 23, 25 years old. So there's a lot of different variables coming in and it becomes, the moral decision becomes about survival and not simply about the right thing to do. So what's the right thing to do in general versus what's the right thing to do for yourself versus what's the right thing to do for your commanding officer, for the men you serve with. I mean, there's a lot of things going on here. So that's why I think the theme will really come come into play a lot because basically every decision they make, whether it's, you know, looking for dog tags or deciding who to save and who to leave behind, morality comes into play. And of course, we will talk about that in depth uh, with Andrew of the AB Film Review and The Last New Wave uh, when we come back after a break. And then we'll talk about Saving Private Ryan. Shannon, CG, Lauren, and Mel form the Nerds of Prey. A group of ladies bonded by comics, gaming, film, television, and fandom culture. Hang out with them bi-weekly as they dig into the very things that make them loud and proud nerds. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. Also, check out their Patreon at patreon.com backslash nerds of prey. All right, we're back. We're back to talk about the movie. So uh, before I embarrass myself and talk about my history with this movie, what is your history with Saving Private Ryan? I don't know if you can get more like embarrassed. Oh, just by the you that... wait. Just you wait, sir. <laughs> I don't know. Saving Private Ryan is a film that is the film that I've seen the most times in the cinema. Uh-huh. Uh, it came out in 1998. I saw it 16 times in the cinema. Uh, 17 if you include when I saw it in the cinema two years ago again. Um, I watched it yearly. Uh, I usually am not a huge fan of like I, I criticize people who rewatch films regularly. Uh, Saving Private Ryan is a <laughs> except film for this I, one. This one's fine. Except, Everything else, exactly. you're an idiot. That's <laughs> yeah, you're a moron. Star Wars, that again. Ugh. Um, but Saving Private Ryan, you know, is a film that I yeah I love this film a lot, and I think I've watched it more than a hundred times. And I'm not saying that as hyperbole. I I genuinely think that I have seen it more than a hundred times. And yeah, I love this film a lot. Oh. It's great. All right. Well, that is embarrassing. Uh, but <laughs> but my embarrassment is on the other side of things. All right. So I'm going to admit to what a fucking asshole uh, I can be, which is no surprise 
to anyone who listens to the show. But you know, sometimes you like look back on your movie movie viewing self in the past and you're like, what were you thinking? Why did you like that? Why did you hate that? Watch it again and your your ideas change as you grow older. So this came out in a period of time where Tom Hanks was winning every award conceivable every year. And I was so fucking sick of Tom Hanks. Like I was just like, I'm over it. I don't think he's that good, which by the way is not true. Tom Hanks is one of our greatest actors and does and deserves every accolade he has gotten over his career. I realize that now. So don't at me, don't email me. I don't want to hear it. I know Tom Hanks is great. But I was in this period of time where like, you know, and this is the, probably the only person to say this, but I was like anti Tom Hanks. I was just like, oh, I don't want to see him in movies anymore. I don't want to see him at the awards anymore. And I saw this movie and I was like, and of course, like it's it's affecting and it's a very good film, no matter who you are. But because I was so anti-Hanks at the period of my life, I was like, no, nah, it wasn't that good. You know, like just just one of those assholes who was just like walked into a movie ready to dislike it. And I was like, oh, Tom Hanks's idea of acting is having his hand shake. Like those are words that I actually said after seeing this movie, which is garbage, which I will not repeat anymore on this podcast. This is probably the last super negative thing you will hear. But... After after kind of getting over getting over myself and getting over my bullshit and rewatching it after it came out on video, I was like, you know what? Like this is one of the greatest movies of the decade. What an asshole I am that <laughs> I was like so so affected by like awards and what other people think of movies that I was like, and we've talked about this offline. Is like I'm not interested in reviews or people discussing movies based on what other people thought like tell me what you thought so i try my best now to kind of leave all my baggage and my bullshit at the door but back then i was not very good at that so i wasn't a huge fan of this movie when it came out but it is something that with repeated viewings i've liked more and more every time i've seen it so there's my embarrassing history with saving private ryan well good thing my 16 trips to the cinema made up for your I uh, went once. Back in I the went 90s, once. So. No one was listening to me in the nineties. Come on, like <laughs> I was twenty. No one. I didn't have a podcast. I wasn't writing anything. I was just like failing at college. That's nobody listens to that guy. Can I, can I guy. ask a personal question? Uh, sure. Way back then, uh, did you have frosted tips? No, uh, never, never, never. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> Oh, what a dick I was. Jesus Christ. Like, I was watching this movie, like, just angry at my former self. Like, just like, God, what were you thinking? This is horrible. So, yeah. So, now that that's off my chest, so let's talk about our viewing of this movie this time. So, you know, Steven Spielberg, as you have said repeatedly, that hack uh, is, again, one of our, I mean... I think it's interesting, like, he is held to this insanely high standard nowadays because he's made these great films. But he is one of our greatest directors. I think he's fucking fantastic. And and I think we get so obsessed with the new and the latest. Like, I'm not going to judge Steven Spielberg's career on the BFG. Like, that's that's ridiculous. Let's judge it on what it actually is. So what did you think of the direction of Saving Private Ryan in particular? What stood out to you? Look, if there's one thing that Steven Spielberg should be known for, uh, especially given that it's what really started his career ever since he was a kid with, you know, uh, the the Super 8 cameras and stuff like that, he loves war. You know, he has a, a great interest in war and a great interest in telling the human story of war. And, you know, as a huge Steven Spielberg fan... Sadly, I haven't seen Schindler's List yet, and I really should do. But it's a hard I, I, watch. It's great. It's phenomenal. But yeah, exactly. It's rough, and, and I think that's why I'm I'm not so keen to to leap into watching it. Sure. Because 
his direction here in particular, uh, while it's not his best direction, I still think that E.T. is possibly his best direction. Um, Saving Private Ryan is a really fascinating, beautifully directed film. And it's it's a stunning achievement as, as a director and being able to bring such a human story to to film. And right. also on top of that, you know, going forward a little bit, he makes a a film where the Americans win World War Two, uh, not feel cringeworthy. Like, right. you know, we're joking off Mike in, in the sense that, you know, uh, the Americans win the war. Yeah, okay, they do in this film, but you never actually feel like that. It still feels like there is the whole entire world war occurring and everybody is fighting against the Germans and, right. you know, and winning that way. And it, it's through his direction that he manages to do that. So it's, it's interesting you bring up like whether like this is his best directed film or ET is. So I put out, you know, you know, this, I put out a poll on Twitter uh, right before we recorded about um, the, the opening sequence of this film, which is like 20 minutes long. So it seems ridiculous to call it an opening sequence. It's like a very elongated sequence that this film opens with. And I think the first 20 minutes of this movie is maybe the greatest thing that Spielberg has ever done or will ever do. Uh, I think it's fucking incredible. I think it's its own its own little mini movie that like you could end it uh, on the beaches. Uh, and and this is a fantastic short film. And it was interesting because I put out this poll like what's a better short film this opening scene or the opening scene to Inglorious Bastards. And I think they're both tremendous, but very different. I think Inglorious Bastards, of course, because it's Tarantino depends very heavily on dialogue. And there is dialogue in the first 20 minutes of this movie, but it's like that kind of shouting dialogue, like, you know, move down the beach this way, do this, do that, shouting orders. But it's not like dialogue. It's not something that that matters as far as the, the narrative structure of this first 20 minutes. So it's almost a purely visual storytelling sequence, um, which is not something that I think of when I think of Spielberg. I mean, he is someone that, that gets by both on visuals and scripts. So like just to see this first visceral 20 minutes of of this kind of storming the beaches and and what occurs there and you get you get character beats just through visuals you get even like moments of levity of course followed by moments of horror and i just think it's tremendous like i it's it's interesting because it's something that i find myself wanting to rewatch but it's so brutal and so violent that it's also very hard it's hard to get through like this first 25 20 to 25 minutes is is like a marathon for the viewer like there are and, and Spielberg is not a violent director, but there are no punches pulled in this opening sequence. And I think it it's interesting because I don't think it's it's actually necessary for the narrative of the film, but it sets everything up so well. It sets the characters up. It sets this it sets like this kind of terrifying notion of what they're going through. But if you just look at like his the the goal of this movie, which is to go get Ryan, like you don't necessarily need this but i think you do need it i think you need it for as a baseline for what these people are going through you know we know that these men are at war and they're in danger all the time but i think like i would never i want to repeat i would never take this sequence out i think it is necessary for the film but for the script for the kind of narrative structure nothing really changes as far as what's going to happen but we understand like what they're going through because of that first 20 minutes Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that this is one of his the best things that Spielberg has done as a director, because, uh, you know, this this particular sequence was mostly all kind of improvised. Yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, they had a, they had an idea of you're getting off the boat. 
you know, people are going to get shot up and stuff like that. And then you're going to move through these particular sequences, but the rest of it was mostly uh, improvised. And, Mm -hmm. and the thing is, and go, you know, skipping ahead a little bit to the, the, the production uh, wise aspect of the the film, but Janusz Kaminski's uh, cinematography here is, is truly phenomenal. Yeah. And I think it's a, this is a really a powerful marriage of cinematography uh, acting performance by Tom Hanks and also the directing by Steven Spielberg. And, you know, if you think of Tom Hanks during that period of time, you've got You've Got Mail and Sleepless in Seattle and all right. these kind of – he was still doing light films. He just kind of uh, – especially when uh, they were doing the boot camp kind of stuff for this film, um, he was doing uh, that that thing you do or whatever it is, his directorial <laughs> film about singing and dancing and stuff like that. This is such a huge change from who he is as, a, as an actor that – for Spielberg to put him into this particular role is such a powerful thing to see. And, and yeah, I think that, you know, he, he manages to deliver a a really stunning opening sequence, but then he, he knows to bring that level down at the right points as well, because the key aspect for me, I think about saving private Ryan. and, And I know that this is a detracting point about this film for people is that it takes moments to be really quiet Yeah, and takes moments to show that, you know, war is not all I'm running into battle screaming my head off kind of thing, shooting all the ammo I've got. There is a lot of downtime. There is a lot of boredom. Uh, there is a lot of quiet. And I think that is really impressive as a director that he knows that, yeah, okay, we've got these beats that we need to hit, but the the downtime beats are almost as important as the mm-hmm. action beats. Yeah. And, and that's that's a sign of a great director. Yeah. yeah. And I think we'll get into that in favorite scenes because most of my favorite scenes are those quiet moments. Like the action sequences in this film are amazing and stunning to look at. Um, but like my favorite moments are the moments with this with this crew, like and the and their interactions. I think those are the those are the best beats of the movie. Uh, I also think from a direction standpoint, um, the death of Caparzo of uh, Vin Diesel's character is one of the most beautiful Spielberg moments I've ever seen. Like there's there's something about the way his body is framed and and with the rain and the blood kind of trailing away from the body and you know everyone kind of in that they're so close to each other and yet you know that that distance couldn't be wider like i just think it's so well shot and so well framed and it's it's interesting i think we and i have this moment too where i think spielberg is great but i i tend to associate him with um with not like kids movies but definitely not these like adult themes although later in his career he's more, done more things sentimentality yeah exactly like that. that's the perfect word for it and this movie is not sentimental like this movie in moments is pretty vicious and if anything it punishes sentimentality like the scene where caparzo gets shot it's because he cares for a child who looks like his niece and that's that's the reason he dies is because he's out in the open and he's put himself in danger and i think that's a really interesting thing an interesting message for a director like spielberg to put out there but just the way that shot with him kind of lying on the ground and the shock of that moment is so well directed because he is he is one of the characters like he's I think the the script does a great job of balancing these characters in the beginning. So you really don't know, other than Tom Hanks, who is the most important. So really, and when that moment happens, you realize everyone you know and care about in this movie is in danger. Yes. I think on the flip side of of that moment, which is, a, it, you're right, it is a very beautiful moment. Uh, one of the elements that Steven Spielberg doesn't do as a director very often is elements of horror. Yeah. Like he's, 
he does, you know, he has directed one of the best horror films of all time with Jaws. But outside of that, right. there aren't really moments of horror in his films all too much. Right. With that said, Mellish's death is pure horror. It is pure terror. And, you know, the it's through the emotional interactions that we have with these characters that makes a sequence like that so powerful. And it's and it's all these little things which go into the theme of, of morality in a, in a huge way, and we'll touch on that later on. You know, but all of these little things add up to a really powerful emotional moment. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think that the opening sequence is as – uh, technically brilliant as it is, and as as powerful as it is to watch, I think that the the climax is better. Um, hmm. And I say that mostly because of the fact that we, yeah, we don't know who these people are when uh, they they're landing on the beach and stuff like that. But once we've spent two hours with them, because that final sure. sequence is a good forty five minutes, oh man, and yeah. we have that emotional connection to them, I feel that it makes that battle sequence even more powerful. And especially mm. given uh, the the scene that, you know, Matt Damon and Tom Hanks have where Matt Damon or Private Ryan is talking about his brothers and stuff like that, which right. then immediately cuts into the, the action sequence. It's those emotional moments, which as a director, Steven Spielberg knows to, to pair all those up just wonderfully. I think it's it's a powerful sequence, and it's a sequence which I've watched many times just by itself mm. because it's so it's like a short film. You know, coming yeah. back to to Tarantino with uh, Inglorious Bastards, and he used Saving Private Ryan as a reference point for Inglorious Bastards as well. Mm-hmm. You know, that film is essentially a whole bunch of short films paired together, and Private Ryan is very much like that. You know, the opening sequence, and then uh, finding out that they've got to go and find Ryan and stuff like that, which is cut off by a church sequence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they're all little short films, and they're all got their own little climaxes, which work perfectly. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get bogged down in like what's which scene is better, which scene is worse. Um, I would say that definitely that last sequence is the most emotionally resonant. In the movie, I think technically the opening sequence, it it affects me more because of the, I think because in the closing sequence, you have a moment to prepare for what's coming because you have all this buildup. Whereas in the beginning, just like all these men, you are overwhelmed and there is no plan. It's interesting that you bring up that it was, most of it was just kind of ad-libbed and it feels that way, but in a very good way, you get that sense of panic that these these boys i mean these are 18 year old boys that they must have felt in that moment as bullets are raining down on them as soon as the doors open so like that that scene just will always work i think a little bit better for me because of that reason but i did want to bring up one pseudo negative thing about spielberg's direction here and i think the i think people run into this problem a lot when they make big budget films and they have names i just think there's too many stars in this movie who show up when you have Ted Danson randomly show up in this movie and Paul Giamatti, like these noticeable people that it like for just a half second, it like ripped me out of it. Cause I'm like, that's fucking Ted. Why is the guy from cheers in, in this movie? Like he is so noticeable and he is such, and he's so much like, and some of it's physical too. He's so much taller than everyone else. So your eye goes to him and it's just like, and I think people run, I just watched band of brothers, um, the like 10 hour, uh, mini series that Spielberg did uh, on the war, and and it has, I mean, it's also phenomenal. But there's a couple moments where you have, like, I think Jimmy Fallon shows up for like one sequence in the in that series, yeah, and, and you're like, and David Schwimmer's in it as well. But actually, he? David Schwimmer is actually very good 
in it. And it, it took an episode for me to get past the David Schwimmerness of that sequence, but that pays off. And like, I don't think anything in this movie is so, so bad that I was just like, oh God, like rolling my eyes. But there were like, just like split seconds where I was kind of like, why is Giovanna Rubisi in this movie? Why, why is Paul Giamatti in this movie? And it made me even more want to get back to Tom Hanks and his men. Yeah, but I think the difference is, I mean, Ted Danson aside, because people knew who he was. Yeah. I mean, I, when I first saw this film, I didn't know who he was because I'd never seen Cheers. So, you know. What is wrong with me. your country? What is, is well, that just like they don't have good TV? They don't, they don't like Cheers in Australia? Is that? <laughs> no, I mean I've 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 become aware of the TV show now. Um but <laughs> you know at 14 years of age I'm, I'm not sitting I wasn't sure. sitting down to go ah oh, it's cheers time. Yeah, fuck yeah. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> no 14 year old has ever said that. That's <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Fair enough. Exactly. So I wasn't aware of who Ted Danson was, but arguably you're only aware of Paul Giamatti now because we've seen him so much and you're only aware of Giovanni Ribisi now because we've seen him so much sure. in 1996, 97, when this film was being made, Giovanni Ribisi, just like everybody else, like Matt Damon, Tom Sizemore, everybody else was essentially a nobody. Um, so I think that the cast here That's is, true. is really impressive because one of the key aspects that, that um, Steven Spielberg wanted for this particular cast was he needed people who looked like they were from the 1940s. Sure. And, you know, as he said, you know, through, um, you know, the just evolution and stuff like that and people growing up and, and the way people are nowadays, we look very different than we did in it's the true. 1940s. Yeah. And so he's pulled together a really impressive Ooh. cast of people. Um, you know, and Tom Hanks, while he doesn't look like Jimmy Stewart, he does have that Jimmy Stewart feel to him. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and that that plays a huge aspect in it. And yeah, you know, it's kind of a bit jarring at first to be like, oh, Tom Hanks, especially when he lifts his head up and uh, on the boat, and then everybody gets mowed down and stuff like that. See, I don't think like, hey, I don't I don't Tom. think Tom Hanks is jarring at all, and I think it's because of that. You know, we have this view of Tom Hanks. He's like America's dad. Like he's just he is he is the everyman in in every single way. So like, even though Tom Hanks is probably one of the most recognizable movie stars of the last hundred years, I still don't look at Tom Hanks and be like, Oh my God, it's a movie star. I think like, Oh, it's Tom Hanks. That's great. And I think it fits in. And I think it makes the sequences in this film where he makes himself distant from people. It makes it actually like a little bit emotionally painful. There's a sequence you mentioned with, uh, with Ryan talking about his brothers and he, and he wants to know, like, tell me about, like, tell me about this thing that you're holding on to. And he says, no, that's just for me. Which is like a moment that like, if from Ryan's perspective, you're like, oh, that hurts. But from from our main character's perspective, you're like, I get it. I get why you'd want to hold something just for you. Like that, that is something that is for me. And I'm not bringing that into war. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna keep that in that little pocket inside of me. So like that distance, I think, is probably the most impressive part of Tom Hanks's acting in this film is being someone that you can see why they look up to him, but also you can see that that distance between command that is that absolutely is there. Well, it's his it's his way of retaining his humanity, mm -hmm. and you know, especially when we find out what his career is, which was being a teacher. Right. You know, it, it paints a, a huge picture of of what war was like and what it was like to to be a soldier in war at that period of time right you know i was mentioning about samuel fuller earlier who's a, a film director and stuff like that and it's it's like there are people who we didn't expect 
who were soldiers. Jimmy Stewart went and fought in the war and stuff like that. Yep. And they, these are people who are recognizable. That, that is the, this, the power of what this particular war meant. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing for me, you know, talking about how many times I went and saw this film in the cinemas. And I think for me, I hadn't really watched war films growing up all that much. I, I just had no interest in it. And this is what I fear as we grow older and, and get further away from wars like World War Two, is that, you know, we as a society fail to recognize or remember what the impact of this particular war meant to people and and what it meant to the world. Yeah. And for me growing up at this pre- at the time that I was, you know, I think Saving Private Ryan came out at the perfect time because it shaped so much about what I saw in the world and oh. it it informed my perspective of what war is and what war could do. Right. And that was really powerful and it's through, you know, all these all these performances yeah. Um, one of the, one of the other aspects I, I want to mention as well is that I think that, you know, this, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but, but one of the, the pet peeves that I have about war films and, and films are where people are really dirty quite often, mm. um, is that, you know, their, their teeth look really nice huh. and they have pimples, you know, they don't sure. have beards and stuff like that. Everybody here looks like they haven't brushed in days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are some scenes where Tom Hanks has got a pimple on his cheek and, you know, his beard is is noticeably greasy and dirty and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And it feels, you know, all of that adds up into what makes these characters believable and, and helps break down those barriers that yeah. it's Ted Danson from Cheers. Right. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I'm going to retract uh, what I said, everything except Ted Danson. <laughs> Ted Danson still stands out. But, like, I just looked at – and kind of the IMDb of those other actors. And you're right. Like back then I wouldn't have recognized them. Like it just like, they're not actors that had kind of broken big in any way yet. So it's probably just my viewing of it now in 2017 where I'm like, Oh, I know who that person is. And it immediately jumps out at me. So well, um, it's like, sorry to interrupt, but it's like, you know, Nathan Fillion has a, has a quick scene and I'm certain that anybody watching this now would be like, Holy shit, that's Nathan Fillion. Right. It's, it's that man from those TV shows that I like. All right. So you mentioned these performances. So I think we talked, I think, already enough about Tom Hanks. I mean, this is a fantastic performance. Like, I have completely taken a 180 on my original asshole viewing of this movie. And it's it's tremendous. I think it's I think he brings a subtlety to, to this performance that a lot of people wouldn't. Um, there, there are specific moments that really stand out to me, and especially when you know, him and his men are kind of walking through the brush and kind of talking about it. It's one of my favorite scenes where I was talking about now the gripes go up sequence is one of my favorite moments in the entire film where you get you get that humor, but you you also get that distance like you get that. He makes it a joke, but there is still that distance between him and his men. And that's purposeful. It's the captain. What about you? I mean, you don't gripe at all. I don't gripe to you, Riven. I'm a captain. He's a chain of command. Gripes go up, not down. Always up. You gripe to me. I gripe to my superior officer, so on, so on, so on. I don't gripe to you. I don't gripe in front of you. You should know that as a ranger. I'm sorry, sir, but uh, let's say you weren't a captain, or maybe I was a major. What would you say then? Well, in that case, I say this is an excellent mission, sir, with an extremely valuable objective, sir. Worthy of my best efforts, sir. Moreover... I feel heartfelt sorrow for the mother of Private James Ryan. I'm willing to lay down my life and the lives of my men, especially you, Ryden, to ease her suffering. And that moment really kind of 
encapsulates for me like who he is as a character and who he is to these men and it's just it's portrayed so well by hanks like it's he like i said he deserves every accolade he gets he is very powerful in this film and i think you know as you're saying the the gripe sequence is fantastic because it goes it goes back to who he is as a character and Mm -hmm. in the sense that he recognizes that this war is bigger than petty you know things like being uh you know I, i'm really pissed off that we have to do this that kind of thing like mm-hmm. he recognizes that yeah okay in in the grand scheme of things saving this one guy as he says in that great sequence you know this may be the best thing that we can do this may right. be the only you know I, I can't say it better than he can but you know the only goddamn good thing that comes out of this war right and he recognizes that and and that's really powerful and he sells it so well but he wouldn't be matched he wouldn't be delivering such a great, powerful performance if he wasn't matched by all the other guys that he was working with. And I think the thing is, which, you know, everybody after Saving Private Ryan was like, oh, we're doing a war film. We have to do a boot camp because that's what Steven Spielberg did. And I don't think anybody managed to capture it the same way Mm -hmm. that Hanks did with this particular, well, not Hanks, but Steven Spielberg did with with Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. You know, in the sense that everybody was able to work together Right. I might be wrong that I think that Jeremy Davies, because he comes in after everybody and uh-huh. is kind of like an extension uh, because their translator is killed on the beach, um, I think that he didn't actually do the boot camp with everybody else. I think right. he did it separately to kind of give that, you know, when he does finally join up with everybody, there's, there is that antagonism and stuff like that. Right. And I think that's really interesting, you know, in the sense that, you know, he's a great character and he's a really deep character. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about up a little bit more in a second. But I just want to say that, you know, with all these performances here, these are the sorts of the performance where like everybody on this list, you're like, I need to check out what they do next. Because Vin Diesel, Vin Diesel is great here. Like he's really, he really, really like I think I'm trying to remember. I feel like a lot of people saw this after they knew who Vin Diesel was, like when they went back to watch it and were just kind of stunned by this performance because it is so different and so empathetic as opposed to what he's done as a kind of action star later. And it just, every sequence he's in works. And that's why when he dies, when he is killed in this movie, it's gutting. Like that moment hurts. Like even though you've only known him really for like maybe a half hour, because I don't count that first 20 minutes because so much is going on. But as a character, you get maybe a half hour with him, and then he's ripped away from you as he's ripped away from these men. But he really makes the most of that half hour. Yeah, I mean, I, I was aware of him only because there was a – I remember seeing an interview with him around the time and people asking, you know, what what was it like to be, you know, the first time – this is his, uh, you know, film debut here. You know, and what was it like to work with Steven Spielberg for the first time? And, you know, certainly in that interview, I remember him being that um, that Dungeons and Dragons kind of guy that, you know, we've, we've seen, we've known him kind of as uh, through retro videos and stuff like that. That's who I thought Vin Diesel was as a person. So, yeah, I'm sure most people were like, oh, he's Dom from Fast and Furious. Right. Um, but he is really great here. And, you know, it, it's sad that his career went in a different direction because I think that, you know, if he was under better uh, director guidance, he would have had a really interesting career, a bit like Sylvester Stallone in Rocky. Sylvester Stallone isn't a great actor, but under the right guidance, he can be a great actor. Yeah. Um, And I wish that Vin Diesel was under the same guidance because he's really good here. But, you know, everybody else is as well. 
I want to focus on Tom Sizemore for a second because oh, I think that good. he is really stunning in this film. And so stunning in the fact that he was um, – and I assume that he was going through, uh, you know, withdrawals and stuff like that because one of the, mm-hmm. the key aspects of his casting was that Steven Spielberg had said to him, if you take drugs at all while you are doing this film, I will – I don't care if it's on the 58-day out of a 59-day shoot uh, and you take drugs on the 58th day, I will reshoot every scene that you are mm-hmm. in. Do not take drugs. That's but he's great here, and mm-hmm. again, a bit like Vin Diesel. I'm sad that he hasn't had the same guidance uh, under yeah. great direction since, because his his character is, you know, there is there is a love and admiration for for Hanks's Miller from Horvath, and you just you feel it that he is a weathered soldier, and maybe it's because he was going through withdrawals. Maybe not. I'm not too sure, but. It, I don't know. I wish that he had a great career because he is stunning here. Really yeah. powerful. Stuff. He's one of those actresses who's had a really interesting career, like really high highs and really low lows. Like he's he's had some roles that are just tremendous. And then like you could see him just kind of, you know, just kind of treading water and just kind of surviving. But I think his scenes with Hanks are great, but also his scenes with Ed Burns are fantastic. Like, you know, Ed Burns' character like kind of snaps on – on his commanding officer, and I love how quickly Sizemore's character comes to his side, even when even when Hanks won't say anything, and he's just kind of done with the situation at that moment. Immediately, Sizemore kind of steps in between them and gets at Ed Burns' face, and those scenes really work because, like, as a viewer, I'm like, I'm not sure what's going to happen here. Like, are we to a point where there is a mutiny, essentially, and one of our own men is going to get killed by an officer like that's that's the amount of energy that is that is put into those moments that Ed Burns is one of those actors that to me has had a thoroughly underwhelming career like just like <laughs> this 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 movie aside there's really not much that you can point to as great performances but I think he's also really good here yeah I think I think you know Sizemore is like a bulldog in those scenes as well he's very much like the protective dog wanting to make sure things are right. And Ed Burns is like that little kid that's, you know, just got to keep on poking you with a stick. And yeah, I don't think he, he's been better. He's a good director. Um, but I, you know, he's, he's not, he's not ever been better. I think the difficult part in Ed Burns case here is that he has got to be kind of like the, even though he does poke at the, the wound a little bit too, too much and, and really kind of, you know, antagonize situations like why are we doing this? You know, that kind of thing. He's still kind of the, you know, the, the nobody in the sense that he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't exude personality or anything right. here. And that's just who his character is. Right. You know, he's not like, he's not like Mellish whose um, religion makes him, uh, you know, is who he is as a character. Right. Like that, that is what builds up that particular character as a person. And, and he has a personal vendetta against everything that's going on in World War II, which you yeah. understand through his character. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think, I think the, the best thing about, about Burns's character is although he is getting into America's dad's face and essentially wanting to fight and wanting to kill him, you get it because of the plot of this movie. You get why he's upset. Because, like, you have become bonded to these men and you understand, like, why why should we give up, you know, you know, these seven lives for this one guy? Like, you, you understand why he's upset. You get it. You may not agree with it, but you're like, yeah, okay, putting myself in that position, like, I'd probably be pretty pissed too. Like, why is my life worth less 
than this guy because his brothers died. Like that's that's a lot to process, especially for someone who's probably in his, you know, probably playing a character who's in his young twenties. Like that's that's a lot that's a lot to put through. But I'm glad you brought up the the religion aspect because one of my favorite moments is him screaming at at these German soldiers soldiers that he's Jewish. Like as they're being like marched off to, you know, who yeah. does imprisonment or death. And I love that moment. It is like it's one of the few moments, you know, especially before a world that had Inglorious Bastards, it's one of the few moments we had a kind of almost posturing alpha male Jewish character in a in a war sequence in World War Two. And I really liked that that was left in. Yeah, the whole Yud and Yud yeah. and yeah. it's just is really powerful. And, you know, again, coming back to me as a 14 year old, I had no idea was what it was. I'm like, his name's Yudin. I thought it was Melish. <laughs> right, um, right. But, you know, I, I then, you know, I, we didn't have Google back then, people. I'm sorry. Um, but, <laughs> There's no Google <laughs> Translate in 1998. Yeah. That, that didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that I think that that aspect and the fact that he he gets a Hitler youth knife as well at, yep. around the same time, too. And that breakdown again, is, really- is incredible. Like that, oh, that it's performance, powerful. it's so good. Yeah. And, you know, Adam Goldberg is, is a Jewish man and, uh, you know, he, he carries a lot of weight there. And, you know, in that particular scene, I think there's a scene where you can feel that he's probably mean carrying a weight long before he even signed on to do Saving Private Ryan. And this is him, you know, exuding that weight right there on the screen. It's a, it's a really powerful moment, especially as you know that 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 capper to that that opening sequence it is an emotional cathartic moment mm-hmm. then you know the, these characters have been through so much and then for him to have been through that all that death and that violence on the shore and then to have something that that has killed and claimed so many people who follow his religion right um in his hands is just such a powerful moment and of course it's really really devastating when that particular knife takes his life later on in the film yeah. like it, it's just horrifying and and i i do wonder what spielberg is trying to say with that as well yeah you know i i I don't have the ability to go into it deep or anything like that but it's it's dark what he's saying what he's trying to get at there i think and there's a lot of things i think this is the perfect time to move to the script because there's a lot of things in this film that come full circle and one of those is the knife which you brought up and i was wondering what you thought of the framing device we use in the narrative here where you have the beginning with what we find out later is private ryan going to the gravesite and then it kind of wrapping up with the the kind of did i did i earn this like tell me i'm a good man how did you did, did that work for you or do you think the movie works just yeah. as well if you just open with the beaches of normandy and and end with with earn this no, so I mean Spielberg made a really conscious decision. Like when you watch this film, there's no it's an Amblin film and it's a Dreamworks film. Mm-hmm. And usually when you watch an Amblin film and a Dreamworks film, you get the image of E. T. flying across the moon on the bike and then Dreamworks you get the kid sitting on the D with the fishing rod. But that doesn't exist in this film. It starts with a black screen, it says Amblin pictures, Dreamworks, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then it goes to a very um patriotic American flag. If there's one thing I would probably change is taking away the American flag from both the opening and the end. Like mm. the first thing that we see, it's the last thing that we see. I would probably take that away. But other than that, I think that you have to open it with Private Ryan uh, going to the, the the cemetery at the beginning and and the end because yeah. it comes back to what I was saying before in that you know the the emotional impact as a character for for Private Ryan is yes. 
you know, earn this is a really important thing. And as a viewer, you're like, oh, that's really powerful. And, you know, he was very busy. He had a lot of sex with his wife. So he did certainly <laughs> got earn a big it. family. Good job. He's got a big family. You know, <laughs> if, if that's the that if that's the American way of earning, you know, being able to live through a war and stuff like that. Great. Good on you. But I think as a viewer, for me, it hits on a really more powerful emotional level in the sense that, hey, you know, Tom Hanks is is not just saying it to, you know, Private Ryan as a character, earn all these people that have died. He's saying it to everybody in the audience and everybody that watches this film. Okay, we fought in this war. Millions of people died. You have to earn the right to continue you know, what we fought so you could live for. It, that sentence is really fractured, but essentially yeah, you I know are, what you meant. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because when I was watching this, it's been a while since I've seen this. And definitely like that first sequence with the, the kind of the lone horn and the, the American flag, like there is there is a certain part of me that's kind of like, oh, here we go again. Like we've seen this before, this ultra patriotic uh, moment. and and But like the way the film wraps up, makes the framing device work like when you figure out what this is saying and who this character is because they don't give you any of that information at the beginning of the film so it feels like your standard military film opening where you you know someone goes to a gravesite and starts crying you're like okay this clearly means something to this person but the way the and i don't know what that is because i'm not privy to any of that information but I think the way the movie closes really solidifies how important that is and i think it's interesting it's maybe what, like a minute of screen time, but it, it, it drives the point home and it makes, it makes everything mean that much more. Like, I think this is still a very good to great movie if you take those bookends out, but I think those bookends really push it to another level. But I think that, you know, on initial viewing, you, you first think that it's Tom Hanks as a person because yeah. of course we see him. We see He's our protagonist. He's our hero. Well, yeah, but it also cuts to Tom Hanks in the boat mm-hmm. after that. That's true. And and that 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 kind of morphing nature from um you know uh, Matt Damon to the old man is mm-hmm. is fantastic. And it's really impressive that they got an actor that does kind of look like an old Matt Damon would look like. Yep. You know, it's it's really powerful there. Um I think one of the other aspects which, you know, yeah, I, I poo-pooed the the flags. Um but they're very saturated flags, whereas, you know, there are other they're like films weathered. Which, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there was another look. There was a thing, you know, going to productions on for a very short second here. It was one of the aspects that, that Spielberg wanted to do. He didn't want it to have Technicolor or anything like that. He right. wanted it to feel like a newsreel footage, mm-hmm. like something from the 40s. And having that desaturated flag at the beginning and the end really feels like that. And, yeah, it is still very patriotic, but it it feels like a a – patriotism that has been really hard won right and and really sullied in a way like yeah okay feel patriotic but don't forget that a shitload of people died here and in really devastating ways yeah yeah Yeah, i think there's only there's really only one moment of the script that stands out to me as something that that i find unnecessary i don't think it's bad necessarily but in a movie that's you know, nearly through three hours. You're, okay, like, why did I need this moment? So we have all this stuff on the beach, which is fantastic and visceral and amazing. And we know that all these men have died. Um, and then we have this sequence of like, you know, it's almost like this Brazil level of paperwork 
uh with with like all the death letters and i get it like we have to we have to have something lead up to this like this woman is getting all of these death letters of all of her kids dying but like it just felt like an extra two or three minutes of this movie that wasn't really necessary where we show all the secretaries in the office like and we get all the voiceovers and i was like i'm already affected enough by what has happened on screen i have seen the deaths I don't need the behind-the-scenes paperwork of the death. So that moment really stood out to me as something that, that I didn't need personally. You didn't need to be like, oh, that's that's Brian Cranston with no arm. Oh, Jesus. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing that stood out. But again, back then I would have had no idea who Brian Cranston was in 1998. <laughs> yeah. No, I actually – I love that moment a lot. I think it is a really, really beautiful moment and it, it is – you know, thematically it's necessary and obviously, uh, you know, story-wise it's it's really necessary because of the fact that you need to understand why they would – you need to have somebody explain to them why this bunch of people is going to go and find this one guy, that kind of thing. And yeah, I but love couldn't, that Couldn't moment. you get that with just the conversation between the generals? You know, just you, them you coming could. in? Like I just – I'm already – I'm already beaten down by all the death. Like it to me, like the sequence with all the letters, it doesn't add anything emotionally for me to like really show the effect. I just saw hundreds of people get murdered. I don't, I, you know, yeah, the but, paperwork but, doesn't get to me. But you need to see that, you know, this is, this is not just, you know, all these people on the beach that are dying, that are, that are being affected. You need to see all those people working at home and get the home aspect of this story as well. And you also really need to see, you know, Mrs. Ryan breaking down. You know, no, you no, can't that's have that. You could have that scene. You could have but the generals talking and you could have Mrs. Ryan breaking down. And that's plenty. That gives me all the home that I need. That gives me everything I need to latch on to. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I think, I think the key thing for that particular moment for me is that that one woman who goes to the different trays and recognizes the fact that mm -hmm. these three brothers have died and there's a fourth one out there. And, you know, it's the, the key aspect is that she is paying attention to who these soldiers are and everybody, mm -hmm. you know, she recognizes that these names and these people are connected and these are people from sure. towns, families that are being torn apart due to a war and she's paying attention. They're not just numbers on a page. They're not mm. just statistics. They are genuine people. And she recognizes that and then takes it to their attention. So I, I think it is a really vital scene. Mm. It really is. Yeah, I could see your perspective. I mean, obviously, I don't agree. I feel like it, it works just as well I, without. I didn't persuade and you. This, and this is just <laughs> another example of Andrew always wanting movies to be longer. Like, just like, I want to live in this world just a little bit longer. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I could, I could see that. I just felt like. I don't know. I felt like there there could be a more efficient way to do it, but you know that's that's just me. We disagree, and that's okay. You know, Steven Spielberg is not a, a director who who does films with women in them, and this is that's his, a good point. His... This is the only women in the entire film. That's yeah. you know what? I've changed my mind. We should definitely. <laughs> you've convinced me, Andrew. Congratulations. You have hit the button that will always work for me. Like representation of women in film. Okay, good enough. Um, the thing I really like uh, about this film, is, as far as script, is the way it takes its takes its time. I love the fact that we have this sequence with the wrong Ryan. Uh, that, I love like, that, and, and it's a great moment actually, like just acting wise for this this actor who gets nothing else in the movie, just gets this one sequence, and it really works. It's this moment of it's a moment of pure emotion, but it's also a moment. It's like it's very black humor in this moment where you can see in Tom Hanks's face, like Jesus fucking Christ. 
Wrong fucking Ryan. All right. Well, I guess we got to move on. And I love his performance in that sequence because, like, he gives he gives lip service to, like, yeah, sorry about that. Your brothers are fine. It's okay. Uh, but, like, you could see this frustration on his face. Like, fuck, I just got to find this one guy, this needle in a stack of needles, and I thought I had it, and now we have to go on another adventure. And he's just, like, so annoyed by the whole prospect. Well, that's it. I mean, it's hard to create natural levity in a story like this and yeah and that is a really you know it's a great moment um you know it's it's amusing and it's particularly amusing because you know that that private james frederick ryan essentially <laughs> stands there guy. and goes you know and i love how nathan fillion delivers that as well and like yeah. when he he turns around with tears in his face and he's like but they're only 10 years yeah. old you know and that whole like what if they're Do wrong they're what if there is a mistake and they really yeah. are yeah, and it, it it's funny, but it also works emotionally. Like, you get why this character is freaking out. Me, like, I got to go home. I need to get yeah. home, you know, because I think it's – I think people, when they go into war, one of, the, one of the things they have to do is separate themselves and not think so much about home. And this has forced him to remember his baby brothers are at home and anything could be happening. And his mom is back there and he needs – and he feels like I need to help. And, like, what a horrible reminder – of that like when it's totally unnecessary and it's just a simple mistake and it really works mm, it, it really does yeah it's a it's a good moment and probably the only other comedic moment is is paul giamatti's character when he's mm. whinging about you know his boots and stuff like that right which is amusing and and it works um you know and he's bitching about the you know being dropped in the wrong place and all this kind of stuff <laughs> I, I i love right. that you know yeah and that whole sequence works so well, and and it's got a kicker of an emotional moment as well, as all of these scenes do. They've all got really, really powerful emotional moments. And I think the other thing, coming back to Spielberg as a director, is that you know this easily could feel like a slasher film in a way. Like, yeah. uh, you know, once we get into the the you know the rhythm of another man down, another man dead, kind of thing. It never actually feels like, oh, who's going to die next kind of thing. Right, like no. it, it never feels like that. And it's you feel it's like anyone could, but you're not like yep. just waiting for the next death. Yeah, you're not anticipating yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think probably the the most well-written stuff. I mean, we talked about these kind of quiet moments in between the the foobar uh, detail in this movie, I think it's fantastic. And it's something that could have been overplayed, like, oh, this new guy, fuck this guy, you know, and there's a little bit of that. And I love that they, they mess with him, you know, like you would if someone came into your group of friends. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not just going to open up to you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to bring you in on our inside jokes until you've, you know, and like one of the themes of this movie, until you've earned it. And I love that by the end of the movie, like when he shares, when he shares that moment, where he, t he tells him, like, fucked up beyond all recognition, and it all kind of comes together for him. I love that moment. It's really sweet. And, and But then uh, Spielberg and the and the writer do something really interesting where they, for a, for a moment, they rip away all the good feeling of that moment as, as that character is just standing, essentially crying outside the door while his friend is being killed and doesn't have you know, the, the motivation, the guts, the gumption, the strength, whatever it is to go in that room and save him. Like he just stands yeah. outside and can't, and can't function. So it's interesting that we have this happy moment and then we take that away and then we bring it back when he like actually like, you know, picks up his gun and finally does something. But then we're left with this. I don't know how I feel about what, what has been done to that character. So for a character who has almost no, I mean, he has very few lines in this movie. We get a full arc for that translator character. 
Oh yeah, and you know I think Jeremy Davies is a great actor. Like he really is, and, and very he's, underseen. He's one of those actors that he shows up, and you're like, "Oh, it's that guy. I recognize him from 19 Things." And he just never has really broken big, unfortunately. But I think he's he's always really good. He he is. I think you know, especially I, I the next film that I watched him in was Spanking the Monkey, which is just a you know David O. Russell's first film. It's it's fucked up, but it's he delivers a great performance there, and I love him in this film. I think that he's possibly he possibly gives my favorite performance in this whole entire film. Like in a sea of great performances, he is just brilliant. And only maybe it's because I I, I feel like, you know, for me, he's the surrogate that I, I would relate to that. Yes. No, I, I couldn't do what any of these people do. And as he says, you know, I love the beginning part when he's like, you know, when, when Tom Hanks is running off what he doesn't need to bring with him. <laughs> One of my favorite moments like, in the film, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and he's like, "You've got a pencil. You don't need a typewriter." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know that kind of thing. I love that, and the look of Upham's Upham's face at the time is like, "But I I don't understand this. You know, I don't right. understand why I can't take my typewriter. I, I don't. I'm not built to go into battle." Right. And I think that's just so powerful. Like he's he mm-hmm. delivers so much, and and you really sympathize with him at a really difficult moment when. Mm-hmm. You know, when his friends are dying and he's sitting there and then to see who the guy is, yeah. you know, that there's delivering this, you know, one of the people that he fought to save. Another like, another full circle moment in this movie, uh, which I absolutely love that like to kick in the nuts when he's when that man is let go. I think we are designed to feel good about that. Like, oh, we've done the right thing here. But then it comes back to bite him in the ass. At the end of the movie, and it's just like shit, and it's and again, this this brings forth the kind of the uselessness of war and and a battle. It's just like even when you try to do the right thing, it ends up kind of not mattering that you did the right thing. Well, I mean, that's the thing when you when you'd raised a few of the themes, and we won't jump into the theme in depth just yet. But you know, when you raise a few of the themes, and the first one I think you said was morality, and I'm like, well, yeah, shit, yeah, I mean. That is like the one of the core themes of Saving Private Ryan. Right. Morality and the question of what it is to be a moral person and, and, and how to be moral in war. And that moment in particular is a is a moment that's specifically about moral and, yeah. and morality and stuff like that. So it's ah, oh, it's a really powerful moment too. And it's a beautifully shot moment as well. Yeah. Like that that whole sequence is just you know, they can't see what's coming and they have the opportunity to to duck by it and and they've ra- they raise that question of okay, do we let do we just slip by, and then let the next team deal with it, right. or do we actually tackle it right now yeah. and not have the next team be surprised because they may not see it. Who knows? Yeah. We saw it, but they might not. Yeah, uh, it's just a you know, it's a se- it's a great sequence in a sequence in a film that's full of great sequences. Yeah, I, I think it's really legitimately a great script, and it's something that could easily go to the wayside because you have an hour to an hour and a half of this movie that is the kind of opening battle sequence and the closing battle sequence. So that's essentially like half of the movie is like you you know like sure there are things scripted there, but it's not dialogue heavy, it's not character heavy. Um, whereas, but everything in the middle is really what makes all those sequences really work. Uh, and I think this is kind of kind of a masterclass in in balance and in character building, like just throughout. It really, really works. You care about all of these men for sure. 
Um, so let's talk about the production value briefly. I think we've talked about it a fair amount, like just kind of here and there. But like some of the things that really struck me is there's some, not so much the battle sequences, because those are incredible and we've talked about that. But there's some sequences with the men just walking and you see like tanks going on in the background and other men marching in the background. Just the way Spielberg chooses to either fill the the background or not really hits home that we are in a real world here. It's not just like these are actors dressed up as, as guys in the military and they're walking through the woods. Like you never feel like that. You feel like there are things out of these men's control that are constantly going on in the background. And I think that really kind of solidifies this movie. Like it would still be great, but if you don't have all the extra moments of the things going on in the background and the, the town that they're in, in the end and how that's built, like, I think it doesn't feel as genuine. Yeah. And you know, the, I think the the key aspect is that when when they're up on the the beach and like they've gotten up on the beach and they're they're doing the the whole rundown of everything and learning about what their their next plan of attack is, there's a great shot where you see where they've come from and what mm. they've done. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it would be easy to shoot that in two different locations, but you know, he shoots it so you do see the beach and you do see the aftermath there. You do still see the ships in the water. And that's that's just a beautiful thing, you know. It's it, it gives you a scope which is just it, it's unparalleled. Like it, there's nothing that I've seen that's been able to compare to that. Everybody else feels like they're trying to ape mm-hmm. what Spielberg has done here, yeah. you know. I, and the key aspect coming back to the the, the handheld cinematography of, of Kaminsky in the, that opening sequence, you know, it's usually in films like this where the blood or water or dirt hits the the lens of the camera. There is like, one oh, moment I... where it happens, uh, yeah, and it's a big pet peeve of mine. But I found that for once, it added something here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't like, you don't ever feel like ah. Oh, now I feel like there's a camera there. Like you don't ever feel like that. You actually feel mm-hmm. like you're part of the action. Yep. And and you also feel like a... you don't want to be a part of the action, which oh, is yeah. something yeah. that's really impressive that, that you don't get in most war movies. Most war movies, especially when they open up with a sequence like that, you're like, yeah, oh, this is amazing. This is so cool. We get to be next to this. But in this, because of the way it opens up with all those men immediately dying as they storm the beach, like – for me, at least, watching it, I find myself, like, recoiling from mm. from that first 20 minutes. Even though it's amazing and some of the best war cinematography you will ever see, like, personally, I found myself, like, I don't want to be here. I just want to – and just like these men, like, I just want to get through this. I just want to survive this 20 minutes, you know? So I think it really puts you right there alongside these men. And I think the key aspect, too, is that Kaminsky manages to – you know, do that. It puts you in there with all of the men. But then later on, he has moments of stillness. Yes. That that counteract all of that. And, and you, you know, need it's it. really beautiful. Oh, you do. <laughs> yeah. You, you really do. Like there's a, there's a scene where you know they're they're sitting in the church and there's rain at the church, and just the sound of the rain oh, and the visuals of moment. the rain dripping into the puddles is just beautiful and powerful. Yeah. And then later on, just before the the you know one of these tanks gets hit by a, a you know, uh, uh, the rocket launcher, essentially. Um, there's some beautiful shots of the men just walking through some sunflowers. Yep. It's a great still moment that that really, with that that moment of violence that occurs, and when they do finally meet Private Ryan, you know, you, you get that feeling like all this stillness, all this beauty just torn apart because of, of war, because of chaos. It's, it's devastating. Yep. 
And I think for me as a as a viewer, there's a re there was a reason why I went and saw this 16 times in the cinema. It wasn't just because it's a really good film, but because, you know, way back then, you know, we weren't sure that we would ever have a big screen like we do at home. Like I I didn't ever we, you know, didn't have DVDs. It was VHS back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, all you young people. Yeah. But you, you don't know, know how I, we suffered. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, you know, so I I took I was like, well, I don't know if I will ever get to see this film on a big screen again. Yeah. And this is a film that if you do ever get the chance to see on a big screen, please do because Definitely. it's even more powerful. And and there was a reason why as well, like when this film came out, that they had to set up hotlines for, for veterans. Yeah. Because that opening is so powerful and so intense that, you know, PTSD flashbacks and stuff like of that course. occurred quite a lot. It's painful, you yeah. know, but... Uh, that that sound design and the the visuals alone were what made me go back time and time again. Alongside, of course, the acting, directing, and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I specifically remember feeling you know the bullets ping by your head and and the sound of the rain and stuff like that, and yeah. the buildings crumbling and explosions and stuff. That that whole sound design is just perfect. It's brilliant. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to bring up with production value, there's a particular moment which. I'm sure you love because it's connected to the final uh, action sequence, which which you're a big fan of. And I love and some of this is direction, too, of course. But I love how how the tension is built uh, before before the tanks show up, like you just get the shadow of the tank as it's rolling by. And it, it's another one of those moments in this movie that feels like a horror movie. Like it feels like these men, even though they are they are trying to bring them in, it's like they're being stalked by this giant by this giant iron creature and that's essentially what's happening in that sequence and visually i just love it as you can see like kind of the shadow of the tank kind of overtake these men who are waiting and hiding in this crumbling city and i just i absolutely love that moment and then like you get into the production value of the actual tanks and the sticky bombs like all that stuff really works i mean it's just and i love that the first time they try it it doesn't work and it literally blows up in their face like, that's it, terrifying. It is. Yeah. And you get this moment of like, this is all so well planned. We know what we're going to do. And like sometimes in war, you know, the best laid plans, it's not really going to work that way, especially when you're making something just based on what you have. So that stuff really mm. works, too. And he doesn't shy away from that violence, too. No. Um, the last thing I want to mention about production design is John Williams score is really good, but mm. it would be easy for hot take. You know, John Williams the, is good. It's uh, <laughs> apparent, apparently so. Hey right. guys, you may not have been aware of this, <laughs> but it would have been easy to use it as like a sentimental yes. tool in certain aspects, but that never occurs. There's never that rising score of the, yeah, you know, the gung ho nature of, Hey, you guys are finally winning this battle. You're going to conquer it all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which makes moments like when they are listening to that music and on mm. the record and no, the Edith beautiful, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and this, that that beautiful voice is just singing and then you know i can't remember who it is but it is, they're standing there explaining what she's saying well yeah it's and the tr- it's the translator who's like their yeah, new, yeah, their new translator right. yeah. yeah 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 and he's standing there and he's explaining about the love and all that kind of stuff and love is such a foreign concept in this film like love doesn't exist yet there right. there is no love here at all yep and to hear somebody talk so passionately about it and to hear somebody sing so passionately about it really amplifies that that yeah. emotional kick that we get from that final moment. Uh, yeah. It's a smart use of song there, and it's a it's a really, really powerful choice. I, I 
take my hat off to that. That particular right. choice alone is is great. Yeah, it's a perfect example of sometimes the things we talk about in film are not always true. Like we talk about the show not tell aspect. And this is a like literally I'm just going to translate this song and explain to you what it's about and it's still really emotionally affecting and that is really really rare, rare but handled very well here. So let's move on to our favorite scene. So what is one of your favorite scenes that we that we haven't talked about yet? I feel like we've actually covered a lot of ground in this hour or so. I'm kind of impressed with how much we've we've been able to touch upon. But what's something that we haven't mentioned that you that, that a scene that really connected with you? Ah, uh, I mean, geez, the whole entire buddy thing. But it, like, there there are certain. I, I don't know if there's specific scenes that we haven't talked about, but there there are moments in this film that I think probably rank as like what really makes this film for me. And and in particular, there's a specific moment earlier on in the film on the beach where there's a guy who gets shot in the helmet and then yeah. he takes off his helmet and somebody says to him, Oh, you lucky son of a bitch. And then he gets shot in the back of the head. Brutal. And for some reason, that particular see- scene or that moment in this film stands out above many of the other ones. I mean, I'm just thinking of this one in particular because we've talked about so many great moments already, but but that particular shot alone makes me feel of the the innocence and the naivety and the luck and the chance. I mean, yep. there's bad luck. Like, that is real bad luck. Yeah. And that's just sad. It, it, it really, it, for some reason, it hits me every time I see that. And and the whole scene, the whole film is full of great moments, but that particular one part, for me, works works a lot. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example of a character moment within that first 20 minutes where you get, you know, you get that like you get the danger of the moment and you also get that these are kids, that these are 18 year old kids who would be dumb enough in that moment to be like, oh, my God, you're so lucky. And he takes off his the one thing that protected him from getting shot. And you have this moment of levity replaced by a moment of pure horror. As his, yeah. you know, essentially his brain is blown out the back of his skull. Like it is a very powerful moment. For a character that is on screen for 10 seconds, you know, exactly. but it, but it still really works. So that's kind of, that's why I feel like the opening of this film is so strong. That's a, that's a perfect example. Um, the, the only scene we really haven't talked about is, uh, that's, that's one of my favorites is, is the dog tag sequence, um, oh, yeah. which I absolutely yeah. love because I remember when I first saw this, you are with these guys and you're like, you just want them to find the dog tag. And you're like, you're like, okay, this is, this is fine. And then you realize as they realize how fucked up this really is and how, how jaded that they have become that they're like, you know, counting, like essentially like it's, it's the symbolic version of, of grave robbing. It's essentially what they're doing is they're digging through the graves of these men through their dog tags, trying to find one person. And it just, and it hammers home the point, like, why is Ryan, so much more important. Like, look, all these men who are dead, basically, like, let's just toss them off in a pile. Who cares? And I think it's a really interesting message, I think, that Spielberg is getting across, that maybe that's how he feels war treats these young men, is that they're just piling up bodies and they don't really care about them. And it's interesting that he has these soldiers doing it, too. And I love that eventually someone comes in and realizes, like, oh my God, like, what What are you doing? You can't do this in front of these men and like just rushing to to hide the evidence of this moment. So I, I just love there. There's like an arc in that scene, in this like one minute scene of like, you get why they're doing it and you, you're rooting for them. And then as they realize, you realize, and it's painful. It really is. And it's, it's capped off by a really good moment as well with, you know, the character when they find out where Ryan 
could be. And and that particular scene alone, you know, is, is really powerful. And again, you know, it's so hard to to pick a great moment, but that that is a really powerful moment. And and it's a moment which which as you're saying, you know, it, it reminds people that these these dog tags are people too. These yeah. are these are lives that have been lost. And it's just a really powerful way of of amplifying that aspect. And going back to a scene that you didn't like, which was, you know, all those letters, it's just a different version of the letters. Right. It's just a pile up of essentially different ways that we recognize that these people have died. And and certainly there are there, are, you know, it's a recurring motif in a way. You know, you've got the people on the beach, you've got the letters, you've got the the dog tags. And then, of course, the bookending moments of the huge cemetery with all these white crosses, just right. reminding you of the millions of people that have died. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, so we're going to move on to the theme of morality now. So I gave you I, – I usually don't do this for people, but like maybe I was feeling oh, lazy. <laughs> maybe I was lazy. Maybe I was kind. I don't know which one, but I had like five different themes in mind. Uh, so I just messaged Andrew and said, which one do you want to do? Which one do you feel like you could talk about the best? And you immediately said morality. So in watching this movie, and I guess you would think about morality even if I hadn't given it to you because it is a – core and central theme to the movie but how do you think it it impacts the movie how do you think the theme plays out i mean the 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 whole film is about morality in the sense that you know the the reason why they are going after private ryan is because it is the the right thing to do Uh and it is a thing that would define you know in their mind it is the thing that defines uh, the good guys against the bad guys you know because there is the that perspective of the bad guys are just putting up men to be slaughtered, to be killed, and they don't care about one individual person. So the moral thing to do is to differentiate themselves from the bad guys. And coming back to that scene where where Giovanni Robisi's Wade gets killed, you know, that, that whole scene, that whole sequence is about morality. Like it is about them being better than the other people, the people that they are fighting against. Mm-hmm. And that, that morality is questioned again when, you know, Steamboat Willie kills people later on. And this is a guy that right. they let free. So did they do the right thing? Was it, you know, should they have killed him then? That kind of thing. So for me, right. I think the, the whole entire film is about that. It is about who they are as people and, and there are so many different scenes that show that. And it comes back to, you know, Capasso's scene as well. The moral thing is to try and get these people who they are fighting the war for, you know, to safety. But doing that takes his life. Yeah, and there's a questions that so much. And in that scene, there's a powerful moment where Tom Hanks' character literally says, "We're not here to do the right thing." Yeah, which is a really stunning line of dialogue in a war movie about the United States in World War II, which is probably the last war that we can point to, the last major war we can point to, where we felt like oh, we're quote-unquote doing the right thing here. You know, if you look at more recent wars, it's like, you know, it's about, you know, terrorism that maybe we fostered in other places. It's about oil. It's about this. It's about that. Whereas this, you know, I don't really know the history, so who knows what other what other motives were there, but it did feel like, well, Hitler's doing terrible things and he's encroaching on all these other places and we have to step in and do something about it because it's the right thing to do. So to have your commanding officer be like, basically put that girl down. We're not here to do the right thing. Like we're here to finish a mission and that's it. It's pretty, it's pretty stunning. Um, Mm. And I think I, what I love about this movie and the theme of morality is it doesn't give you any easy answers. I could see someone arguing that, the moral thing to do would be to let Ryan sir, finish finish serving 
or to not sacrifice all these lives for one. I could see someone making that argument, but I could also see like this man's mother has lost all these children and she should, one person from this family should survive. So I could see that being the moral decision too. And, and it's, I love movies that don't give you easy answers. And this definitely falls under, under that heading. Like even, even all the way up until the very final scene with old Matt Damon, I think it's something that you're still not sure if it's the right thing. And he tells him like, you have to earn this. And there's another line earlier where one of the characters says, like, this guy better do something great. Like, this guy better invent something. This guy better yeah. really come through. If all these people are dying just for this one one man's life, it better be important. So I think yeah, in some better, ways... better invent the, the, ever la- the, the long-lasting light bulb that's and right. stuff like that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so I love that. I love that, you know, even till the very end. And you could tell even Matt Damon's character, even Ryan, is not sure near the end of his life. If he has earned this, if if it has been worth it for all these men to give up their lives, because he, you know, he asks his wife, like, or he doesn't ask her, he says, tell me I'm good. Like, essentially, tell me I've earned this, which really, really works, you know, because I could see from that, from the perspective of that character, like, yeah, maybe they made the right decision. They were following orders. But is the life I have lived, is it worth all these men? Mm. I think, you know, and the key aspect as well is that the, the film does continue asking all these questions of do, are they doing the right thing? And and there is that one powerful moment where they have the opportunity to take Private Ryan away mm-hmm. and leave his squad there to defend this one vital point. Right. And that's the key is, you know, it, it, as you're saying, it continues to ask that question about are they doing the right thing? You know, if they stay there and fight, well, they could lose a, lot, a, a bunch of men, and they do lose a bunch of men. Yeah. Or alternatively, they could, you know, cut their losses. They've got Private Ryan. Let's get him out of there. Right. And yeah, I think ah, uh, it just. I think it's the it, one moment this, that Tom Hanks's character decides, uh, really, I'm going to do the right thing here, because if he was just following orders, he would have just taken Ryan and left. Because really, well, exactly. like you're just you're just leaving them with one less man. It's probably not going to make that much of a difference. Like if we were never here versus us taking this guy away. But he realizes I have something to offer here, not only as like just one more man, but as a leader and as someone who can actually help. And he chooses to do the right thing instead of just purely following orders. But but it's Private Ryan who manages to uh-huh. convince him of that as right. well by saying, you know, well, if I don't stay here and fight with the remaining brothers that I have, then what was the point of my real brothers having died in the first place? Yeah. Like, if I abandon them, then then what's the whole point of all of this? Yeah. And, you know, there are, there are some really powerful scenes where, you know, he's standing there and, well, he's there's a shot of Matt Damon where he's crying and he's got his hands on his head and then... You know, when Tom Sizemore gets shot in the chest and as he's walking away and there's there's those few motifs of, uh, you know, the, the the sound being sucked out of the film and, yeah. you know, it, it slows down and they really amplify the, the scene of, hey, this violence, is this right? Is every single action that they've made up until this point the right action that they can make in a shitty situation? Right. And I, I think one thing we didn't really talk about, I think that, that pretty much covers the theme. I think it's it's the perfect theme for this movie. One thing we didn't really cover is like how really good Matt Damon here is. Um is it would be very easy for 
for us to see Ryan like some of the men do is like, oh, this fucking guy. But like immediately within like two scenes, we respect that character. And that yeah. is due not only to the script, uh, but to the performance of Matt Damon. Like it is really impressive. Not only him standing up and saying like, no, I don't want to leave. Why would I leave? Why me? And his his quiet moments with Tom Hanks, which really work. You know, the the, you know, don't do it. You're a young man. Uh, speech, which mm. uh, all that stuff really works, and you get that camaraderie. And again, like I talked about earlier, you get that distance between him and a commanding officer. So the, all that stuff really works. And Matt Damon, you know, holds his own against Tom Hanks, which is which is not nothing. Tom Hanks is one of our greatest actors. So for him that early in his career to actually share the screen with him and us not roll our eyes is pretty impressive. So it is, yeah. And he's he's not a pretty boy in this film. He, no, you know. He's good. He yeah. really is. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So I think, you know, we both highly recommend this movie. Of course, it's fantastic. It's it's one of the best movies of the 90s for sure. It's something I've definitely come around on. My Tom Hanks hate has finally gone away. I've let go of it and all is well. Uh, all is well in the world for me. Um, so the last thing we have to talk about is the movie we're pairing this with, um, which is another, I guess, depending on who you talk to, another well thought of director, uh, Christopher Nolan doing a war epic doing Dunkirk. So are you excited to watch Christopher Nolan's war epic? Sadly not. Um, that's cause you're an asshole. You're the worst. It, it is cause I'm an asshole. And <laughs> <laughs> no, the reason, the reasoning is like, I am excited to see it as a spectacle because he is a a great visual director. Yes. But throughout his films there has never really been an emotional No, here we go. thread through them. No, well, you know, in certain in certain moments in Inception I think there are, but he is not a a, a sentimental director in the way that Steven Spielberg is. And he is certainly not a director who I feel manages to elicit a lot of emotional reactions from from people from viewers, essentially. Um, Speak for yourself, you, know, just... you cold, heartless animal. He, I mean, well, th- this is something that actually legitimately bothers me. I've heard this. <laughs> I've heard this discussion about Nolan before, and I don't know what fucking movies you're watching, because pretty much every film that I've watched from Christopher Nolan has had an emotional impact on me. Like, I honestly, I'm confused. I don't get it when people come at me with this, like, well, there's no emotional connection in his movies. There's no emotional lines. You can complain about Interstellar all you want about how things don't make sense or it was too long or you didn't like it or whatever fucking masturbatory nonsense film Twitter has to say about it. But that movie is about emotion. It's about connection. It's about fathers and daughters. Like, I don't know how you can walk out of that movie and be like, well, there's nothing emotional in that movie. You've lost your mind. No, okay, so... uh... No, there are emotional moments in that scene, in in that film, but I don't, when I think of his films in retrospect, I don't ever think of the emotional moments that Mm. are in them. Like, I I really do get moved quite a lot by Marion Cotillard's performance in Inception. I think it is a really great Uh performance from a great actress. Agreed. So that's why I have a little bit of trepidation from him doing a war film where you know, he is all about the spectacle. And I guess for me, I'm a little bit like perturbed by the fact that, you know, he's, he is using, uh, apparently if the reports are correct, he's used a, a world war two plane and destroyed it. It's one of the very few that, that sure. exists in the world uh, for an action sequence. I'm like you fucking directed a Batman trilogy that made billions of dollars. <laughs> Can't you just recreate that? Like to yeah, me, it's valid. 
like what what is so powerful about your story that you feel like you have the right to destroy a piece of memorabilia well mate, it's not memorabilia it's not the right word but you know it is way to negate your point <laughs> oh that was fantastic i just i just i watched you crash your argument like it was amazing to see that out but i but i get what you're saying is that like you have the money to rebuild this in a way that looks exactly like like it why destroy something that's a part of history yeah yeah so um <laughs> I, that's why, I mean, I'm still going to go and see it, of course. You know, it's a Christopher Nolan film. You have to see these films on the big screen. Um, Otherwise you can't I join think... in and talk shit. So, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, you know, I, I have loved pretty much all of his films. Uh, so, you know, I am excited for it. But I just, I'm, because of these things, I'm a little bit cautious about going in. The the mm. hearing, I hear that it's about 90 minutes long, though. So that that really gets me excited. Yeah, because his films do kind of uh, drag on just a little bit. Yeah, see, totally are, disagree. Are you excited? Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So he's <laughs> him and Guillermo del Toro, are my favorite working directors. So I, well, second I heard about this movie, I've been looking forward to it. So that's been like a year and a half at this point that I've been looking forward to seeing this movie. And if you look at the cast, I mean, you've got Tom Hardy, Killian Murphy, Kenneth Branagh, Mark Rylance. Like I am, I am so in on this. I, I couldn't be more in on it. Like I'm really excited to see this movie. Uh, you've hit another one of my pet peeves. You're really good at that today is that there's tons of people online being like, Oh yay. The Christopher Nolan movie is short. And I have one thing to say to you. Fuck you. I hate that. I hate that attitude. Like, Oh, well this director, all his movies are long. Yeah, but all his movies are fucking great. That's fine. If he wants to make two and a half hour long movies all the time, I'm fine with that because he makes great two and a half hour long films. Like if this, you know, like fine, it's 90 minutes, 100 minutes. That's great. That's fine. It's it's less time in the theater, I guess, if that's what you're into. But like, I don't know. I hope it's I hope it's not one of those things. And I doubt it is because Christopher Nolan doesn't give a shit about what people say about him, clearly. But I don't think it's a thing where he's like reacting to people complaining that his movies are too long. But I hope it's not because there's a lot of that. There's I mean, I think it's part of our, you know, our part of our three screen culture where we're like and I'm very guilty of this where I'm on my phone and watching a movie at the same time and can't be bothered to spend more than two hours in a theater. But you're talking to someone whose favorite movie is Lawrence of Arabia, which is like, damn, it's like four hours long. Like, so I'm not going to sit here and be like, don't make long movies. Like if you can make a great movie that's more than two hours, that's fine. But if you're going to make a but, subpar movie, sure. Make it short. Yeah. I just, I find it interesting because I think in, in the war genre in particular, they are usually long. They're yeah, usually epics. Um, so to see somebody who is known for epic stories to tell an epic story in a short time with a great cast about a, a really powerful thing has me interested. Yeah, um, that's and true. Still, uh, I'm, and, and part of the reason why as well is a bit like with Interstellar, I went in with lowered expectations and I was really pleased by what, what came mm -hmm. out of it. So I'm hoping that if I go into this film with lowered expectations, I will be even more surprised. Like, you fucking idiot. What the <laughs> fuck are you on about? You know, no emotion, bullshit. You know, so you're going to you're going to treat yourself like I treat you on a daily basis. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Stop hating yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. <laughs> exactly. All right. So uh, at at. I think we could say we're both looking forward to it. Obviously, I'm looking forward to it more than you because I'm better than you, uh, which is fine. I mean, like, if you got to rank beat below someone, 
it's pretty good, Andrew. You're still you're still in good company. Uh, oh, that's but, all right. But no, like all joking aside, we're, we're we're both looking forward to it. And even though it may not come across, I really do like Andrew. Uh, he's one of my favorite people to follow online and one of my favorite people to talk to. Uh, so why don't you tell people how they can listen to your show and how they can contact you online? Look at that segue. Um, look, I'm, I'm contactable at AB Film Review on both Facebook and on Twitter. I'm more active on Twitter. I talk about shit on there quite a bit. Um, feel free to follow me there. Uh, abfilmreview.com. You can listen to the podcast that I do with my wife and the Australian film podcast as well, uh, which you can also follow on followingfilms.com where your show, Pop Culture Case Study, is and a whole bunch of other stuff. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. So, as you know, I always want our listeners to be more involved, and there's a bunch of ways you can do that. What I'd really like is for you to send me an email with your thoughts on the show or your thoughts on the movies we cover, and that is at popculturecasestudy at gmail.com. You can, of course, also follow me on Twitter at PCCaseStudy if you prefer to engage with 140 characters or less. Or you can go to our website at followingfilms.com and check out other great movie podcasts like the True Bromance Film Podcast and the Best and Worst of the Best. And if you have some extra change lying around, you can actually donate to the show at patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. And you can donate on a per-episode basis and get some great rewards like a shout-out on Twitter or even picking a movie that we cover. Okay, so the next time you hear me, we will be doing a new release review on a movie I'm really looking forward to, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. So, until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Can you not put your head there, please? Do you have a dog visitor? I do. <laughs> Like he's he's literally there you go thank you goodbye um, he's very upset because um, I kicked him out of the bedroom um, so you son of a bitch that's it it actually it surprises me how many people come on the show and they have physical notes because I haven't taken a physical note since I started undergrad like that has never happened so like every once in a while I hear someone like shuffle papers I'm like what are you on a news podcast what are you doing. <laughs> I gotta edit that shit out. <laughs> like, let me just uh, let me find my notes. Yeah. Jesus Christ! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like you eating snacks. It's like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs>